it's good to be here. When, uh, when Jeff asked me to speak, I realized that usually I speak on the week after Thanksgiving, the week after Christmas, July 4th, Labor Day. I, I kind of have a, um, a vacation uh, tradition uh, at churches. So um, I probably have more July 4th sermons than anybody on earth. I, I'm, um, it, but it really is a, an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Jeff asked me to speak, and he said it was my choice. If It's the first week of Advent. And for those of you that are, are still walking toward a faith in Christ, or as those that maybe came from a, a, tra- a Christian tradition that didn't include Advent, I came from that kind of tradition. I didn't know much about Advent. And so when, when the Advent season, the Advent season, that's the four weeks prior to Christmas. Because all of us are mesmerized by the amazement of Christmas and, and the excitement of Christmas. And so the early church said, let's, let's take seriously this Christmas season and let's, let's get ourselves prepared for it. And so I didn't know much about this when I first became a Christian. And, 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 and I remember being pretty excited because I was excited about the amazement of Christmas. I love the pageantry and the beauty and the excitement of Christmas. So I started to, uh, so here's a confession. So I started, I remember getting some devotions that were supposed to read through for Advent, and I never got through all of them. And I don't, I don't know how many times we've had these little wreaths at our house, and, and we've gotten maybe three of the candles lit, and then the kids would be fighting about who gets to light the candle, or I'd forget to do it, and I'd get mad about it. or I'd, Especially right at the beginning of Advent, because it seemed like you would you'd get these devotional books on Advent, and you'd say, okay, this is such a great idea. I mean, this is such a great idea the amazement of Christmas. How do I prepare for it? And, and if you know anything about the tradition, the first candle is lit, the first, the first week of Advent is often called the hope candle. And often what, what people talk about are the deep longings and, and our hopes and our unmet longings. And, and they'll talk about waiting. And I don't like to wait. I don't enjoy waiting, and I don't want to think about the deep longings inside. I just want the amazement. I just want the excitement of Christmas. My favorite gospel would be the gospel of Luke. You know, he uses the word amazement more than any of the other gospel writers. There are five words in Greek for amaz- um, that can be translated as amazing or amazed. He uses all five. The Gospel of John, I'm sure John was amazed too. He only uses that phrase or a phrase like that five times. Luke, it's all over the place. The, Mary and Joseph were amazed. The shepherds were amazed. The, the, the people, when the, the man was paralyzed, they were amazed. Matter of fact, in that verse in chapter five, he uses two words for, the, for amazing in the same sentence. There seems to be this, this way in which Luke talks about ama- the amazing gospel. And, and I go, I like that. Because that's kind of what I want. I want that amazing excitement. But then you look a little closer at the Gospel of Luke. And it's the, it's the story of the disenfranchised. It's the story of women and children, of Gentiles, of the disenfranchised of society. And it begins the Gospel, it begins the Christmas story with shepherds. Shepherds in their day. We think of shepherds, we kind of think of a nice guy with a, with a stick. 
Back in the day, shepherds would have been seen with great shame because they couldn't live under the ceremonial uh, requirements of the of the synagogue. They were not even allowed to. They were not even allowed to testify in court. They were seen as the. They were often considered thieves. They weren't trustworthy. They were seen as the least of these, the worst of the worst. They, they were just shepherds living in great shame because what they did, no one really respected much. And somehow, the odd route to amazing doesn't go through pretending or doesn't go through trying harder. Somehow, this odd route to joy goes through sorrow, shame, and the deep longings. And so, when Jeff asked me to speak about, I could speak about Advent or something else, my first reaction was, I'll talk about something else. Because that beginning of, that whole beginning part of Advent seems, I thought, what is it about that that bothers me so? And I realized it's because I don't want, I want the amazement without understanding that the odd road to the amazing, the odd road to the glory is often through sorrow and facing shame instead of pretending. Well, before we talk any more about God and before we talk about his word and before we read his word, let, let, let's talk to him. Could we pray together? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. You know that we long for for amazing. We often pretend our lives are such. But you know the truth. You know that most of us struggle instead with shame. So would you meet us here this morning? Maybe meet us the way you met the shepherds on that hill so long ago. And would you usher in this season in our hearts and our families and in this church in a a beautiful, glorious way? Father, you know everybody here, you brought us here this morning. You know the people that are the doubters, just struggling, just hanging on. You know the people that actually fought on their way here, you know us all. So would you meet us here this morning? You know how we struggle with shame. So Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time to disrupt them? For the people in this room that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read a passage you've heard so, so many times. You've heard it preached so many times. You've actually heard Linus, I know he's not a real cute person, say this in the, you know, quote this passage from Luke as he taught in the, in the Christmas special of Peanuts. It's that passage in Luke where the shepherds have this amazing visit from the angels. It's in the second chapter of Luke. I'm going to read it for you. It's verse 8. It starts, uh, 
It says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they, had, what they were told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which is, just, which is the way it had been told. Shepherds. God always writes his story with irony. The very people that weren't allowed to testify in that society the people who couldn't go to court, the people everybody would have thought were just thieves, they were the ones invited to testify to the world of what was taking place. Only God can tell a story like that. You know, sometimes we, we act like, I can't believe non-Christians don't believe this. You know, I can't believe they don't believe the gospel. Well, I always want to tell you, when you honestly read this, it makes sense they don't believe it. I mean, my goodness, Shepherds were the least likely people. They lived in such shame. People would look at them with disgust as unclean and they're the ones invited. And by the way, Mary and Joseph, just young kids in a barn, the savior of the world in a feeding trough. We act like, I can't believe anybody doesn't believe this. No, it's, it's an amazing story. This Sunday, I'd like us to begin the Advent season together, individually and corporately, being invited into this amazing season through the odd path of understanding shame. You see, most of us struggle with shame. Shame is that sense of personal disgust. I'm just so stupid. Where'd that come from? I'm just, that sense of of shame. See, shame's not the same thing as guilt. The difference between shame and guilt are are incredibly significant. Guilt has a, as a matter of fact, I was listening to a researcher talk about emotion. And this person said, all emotion other than shame has a purpose. I don't understand shame because it doesn't have a purpose. Guilt has a purpose. It evokes something in you. It makes you want to change your behavior. It wants you to to repent, to do something different. 
See, guilt focuses on behavior. I did something wrong. I want to change that. Guilt is correlated, the research would suggest, that guilt is correlated with good things. Uh, Change behavior, people being kind to one another, people making good choices. That guilt is not, is associated with positive things. Shame, on the other hand, is associated with addiction, abuse, bullying. Most of the things that, that we would call the ills of our society are correlated with shame. People who feel shame, people who deeply taste shame, people who live out of a shame-based identity tend to do things that are that we would that are negative. So the idea is that God decides this odd book of Luke, this book that you would say is the amazing gospel. One of the most amazing things about the gospel of the gospel of Luke is he tends he goes through places where people would normally say, "Oh, that person." Those are people of shame. Those are people of regret. Those are the wrong people. The whole gospel of Luke is the wrong people doing the right things and the right people doing the wrong things. It's an amazing gospel. And so when Luke begins to tell the story of the incarnation, when he begins to tell the story that speaks to the very lie that we're not alone. See, shame will tell you three lies. You're alone, you're never enough, and who do you think you are anyway? And so when Luke wants to speak to the beginning of the the, the beauty of the gospel, the amazing story of the incarnation, and he wants to, to, to take away that first myth of you're alone, he starts with the least of these. You know, the problem with the way most of us talk about the gospel is we kind of talk about the gospel of we're good people. God's going to make us a little better. I'm a pretty good guy. And with the gospel, I'll be a really good guy. That's no wonder the gospel's not very compelling. If it's just a self-help program, if it's just a way to lose a couple of pounds emotionally or spiritually, if it's a way just to kind of tune up, But that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that that you bring, he knows your shame. And you bring your shame to him. And that's where he meets you. And he invites you into amazing. Most of us instead live the opposite of that. We hide our shame. And we pretend our way through life. Living for resumes instead of eulogies. Living for how, how we can present ourselves really good and, and, and perform and, and impress people. And God would invite you to live with the freedom of living for eulogies instead of resumes. He would invite you to taste the honest reality of guilt but not live in the, the cesspool of shame. So what happens if your story is being hijacked by shame? I, I'll never forget the a funeral I was in. I was at a few months ago now. 
One of my former students, her son, took his own life. He'd struggled with addiction for many, many years. And she went back home to the funeral and a bunch of the students at RTS, that we, we went back with her. It was her turn to speak at the funeral. And this is what she said. Interestingly enough, her son's name is Luke also. Her Luke told a different story of shame than the gospel of Luke. Shame killed my son, she said. Shame killed Luke. Shame kept him quiet, living in dark secrets with terrible regrets, surrounded by friends, but so very alone. She stopped and she looked out at the, at the people gathered at the funeral and she noticed the faces of other of his friends, many of them also struggling with their shame. And she said, do not let shame win. The evil one has filled his quill with shame, disconnection, secrets, and sorrow. And is writing his story of darkness. God's story of light. God's story of light is written with redemption and hope, community and truth. The glory of God's story is written with his own blood. She stood there at the funeral and said, don't let shame win your story. The story we just read in Luke, the gospel of Luke. Shame could have won those shepherd's stories as well. It's just so extravagant that God would would meet people who would, would be looked down upon, would be, their back would be turned on, they'd be, be considered unclean, thieves. It's amazing. Joseph had a dream about an angel. Mary had one angel visitor. The shepherds, they had a host of angels. As if God wanted to say, shame doesn't win in my story. What happens to you when, when shame begins to win your story? Well, first, I guess I should say, where does shame come from? Shame is kind of our culture's word for sin anymore. You don't hear people talk about sin that much, but you, you do hear people sometimes talk about shame. Shame comes from, it's this overriding sense of disgust about yourself. It's what Adam felt when he sinned and he hid himself. Shame can come from mistakes you've made in your past. Shame can come from failures. Shame can come from what other people have done to you. People that have been abused often struggle with shame because they were treated with such disrespect and disdain. People that the way you were raised can impact the way you see yourself. A shame-based identity is a story written with shame and disgust. And it comes from your mistakes, the mistakes others made about you. And it is prevalent. It's, It's our sin nature. 
without the work of Christ, we're left to just try to rearrange shame so we're not exposed. You see, when we're exposed for who we are, when we're exposed for just being shepherds, most of us will instead will we'll go to shame, which will hide and protect. God would instead invite us to move toward vulnerability. But I'm ahead of myself. Let's talk about what happens when shame writes the story instead of God's glory writing the story. First of all, when shame is writing your story, look for isolation. One of the realities of shepherds is they lived a very isolated life. They lived out in the fields alone. Many of us, because of the way we see ourselves, we live very, very alone, very isolated. There's a difference in being lonely and living alone. I know a lot of people who have big families and there were many of you at Thanksgiving this week who, who were with others, but you were very isolated. No one really knows you. Shame isolates. You isolate. You, you pull in. You believe you're alone and you believe no one would understand you. And you believe this But not only does it isolate you, it also makes you want to protect yourself, self-protection. That self-protection, I won't let people see, I won't be vulnerable. You see, vulnerability is a weakness and you at all costs don't let people know what's really going on at all costs. And you, and you struggle inside with this sense of inevitability. I'm just going to end up like my mom. I'm just going to end up like, uh, it's just a matter of time before I, I fail. And you live with this incredible sense of inevitability, but you try to push it away, push it away, push it away. And so you live with this sense of self-protection. I'll protect myself. I'm isolated. And I'll protect myself. The cross teaches us it's impossible to protect yourself and to love someone else. And so as you self-protect your relationships, they start to fall apart because you don't risk anymore because you're protecting yourself. And you know, if you don't risk in a relationship, it becomes stagnant because it's a growing thing and, and our relationships become wooden and stale. Because we no longer risk for the sake of growth because we can't risk. We don't want to make that risk. We have to protect. So not only does when shame writes your story, do you feel isolated, you self-protect. You also struggle with self-hate or self-contempt. I'm just, I'm just worthless. I'm just stupid. You ever do something and all of a sudden those kind of words come out of your mouth? can't believe I did that. And it's more than just I made a mistake. It's I'm a mistake. It's not, yeah, I kind of messed this up. It's I'm just a mess that I'm, I'm a. And it's 
really disdain for even the way God made you. It's disdain for the longings that you have, the thirst. You know, at the core of our deepest longings is a longing, a desire to know God. Satan's story separates us from each other, but mostly from God. Satan separates us. Sin separates first from God, then from each other, then from ourselves and from all of creation. God's story connects first with him, then with others, and with even ourselves. God is in the business of connecting, and that's our deepest longing that we would connect. Philosophers from all sorts of religions have talked about this for, for centuries. They've said, oh, the the longing to love and to be loved, the longing to feel like your life makes a difference. It's the, it's the very core of humanity. But if you're living out of a sense of self-hate you and self-contempt, and they can't, you can't really be in relationships. So you have isolation, self-protection, self-hate, and self-destruction. People who live with shame often have an odd way in which they live. In one way, they live very entitled. Somebody love me, somebody love me because they're so desperate. Well, let's change that. We're all so desperate. And then another way, they sabotage it with their self-protection and with their because they know they don't deserve it, because we ultimately give ourselves what we think we deserve at some level. The shepherds had no thought that they deserved to be the witnesses of the incarnation. They were just mere shepherds. If you want an amazing Christmas, You don't start with, I'm a pretty good guy and I love Christmas season. If you want an amazing Christmas, you start with realizing that we're a room full of shepherds. That we're a room full of shepherds that we look okay on the outside, but most of us struggle pretty deeply on the inside with with shame and regret and fear and questions. And God wants to meet us on a hillside and say, with a host of angels, and invite you to the manger. But the manger doesn't mean much until you realize we're the last people that ought to be invited. Not only will you struggle with isolation and self-protection and self-hate and self-destruction, you'll, you'll also have this odd sense of self-preservation. You move from living to surviving. And you live by vows. I'll never let this happen to me. I'll never let that happen to me. I'm going to live by vows and I'm going I'm to just survive. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we would survive. He came to give us life. I mean, listen to the language God uses in Scripture to describe us. He talks, he uses language that's evocative, 
that's, that's visceral. He, he says that we're hungry. He says that we're thirsty. He says that we're blind, that we're lame, that we're slaves. Listen to the visceral language God is trying to say. He's saying, you're shepherds for goodness sake. Do you not? You see, it isn't freeing to realize you're a shepherd and pretend you're not. It's freeing to realize you're a shepherd and that God says, but that doesn't matter. Come and be my witness. Come and see. So not only will you live with isolation, self-protection, self-hate, self-destruction, self-preservation. Notice how often the word self is used with shame. Shame is is a preoccupation with self. Oddly, shame gives you also an illusion of control. Now, this is a little bit odd to explain. But people, with, people who live out of a shame identity, it gives you a sense of control because you're in control of fixing it. I'm horrible and I'm going to act like I'm not. I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. And as long as you're in control, it gives you the illusion of control. So shame gives you this odd sense that I'm controlling everything. Truth is, you control very little. However, if you acknowledge that and trust the one who does control, That's a very different way of living. But shame invites you instead to live with the illusion of I'm in control. I can fix it. I can fix it. I can take care of myself. I don't need to tell anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I can do it myself. It's all okay. It's okay. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. It's not so bad being a shepherd after all. And God says, you don't have to see yourself that way anymore. Because I don't see you that way anymore. We we falsely believe that we, that our addictions are Our desires are too strong. But I like the way C.S. Lewis said it when he said, no, it's not that we're too strong. It's that we're half-hearted. Listen to his quote. This is a Lewis quote. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord find find our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation by the sea. We are far too 
easily pleased. First time I heard that, that my problem isn't that I want too much. My problem is I've believed the lie of the shepherd and I'm... Something I want too much, I, I settle for too little. God's offering me amazing. And I'm settling for management. I'll just manage my life today. I'll just manage. I'll make it. I can manage it. I can, I can do chaos pretty well. And God says, oh, don't settle for management. Be my son, be my daughter. Come down. Come down to the manger and see the unlikely reality of the king of the universe in a feeding trough. And be a witness, even though the rest of the world says you shouldn't be a witness. What happens if you begin to let God's glory Write your story instead of shame. See, God's telling a story with our lives. Sometimes people will come in, you know, they, they, I, I teach uh, at RTS, I teach counseling, and, 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 and ultimately what people want from a counselor is they come in with very little hope and very little faith. And they just borrow faith and hope from the counselor until they begin to believe that it may be true for them. And that's why the most important thing for a counselor is to be somebody who's got faith and hope. Because that's what's being borrowed. See, if hope and faith and God's glory begins to write your story, instead of shame, things will change. The antidote for shame is that isolation becomes relationship and community. What's unique about the gospel, what's unique about Christianity is when you become a Christian, you don't just, uh, you're not just saying, I believe this set of things. You're invited to be a part of a family, part of a community. It is odd that you are celebrating the first Sunday of Advent with a chili supper. I'm just saying but there is something about the invitation of, you know Jesus, oh, and by the way, welcome to the family. You're a son or daughter, and the people around you are your brothers and sisters. And you've been invited not just to, to, to ascribe to a set of beliefs, not just to say, here's what, here's what we believe. You're invited to be about something of who we are. You're invited into community. Ironically, many of us still live in our shame that we don't have to anymore. And so we don't allow ourselves to live in community. One of the first things that happens is isolation begins to melt away to relationship. Self-protection begins to melt away to risk and vulnerability. People begin to risk to help their neighbor, 
risk giving even when they don't have enough yet for themselves. To risk trust, to risk that, to care for someone else and begin to be vulnerable instead of just self-protective. Remember the three lies of shame would be, you're never enough. Who do you think you are? And you're all alone. The gospel says you're not alone. And you were never supposed to be enough. I'm enough. And who do you think you are? You're my son or daughter. Part of the royal priesthood. It answers the questions of shame. When God begins to write your story, isolation becomes connection. Self-protection moves to risk and vulnerability. Self-hate shifts from an identity that's self-based and disgust-based to an identity in Christ that is other-centered and God-centered, not just self-centered. And so self-hate begins to to shift to an identity based on God's glory and God's grace. It's calling. Self-destruction begins to melt away when somebody begins to see the gospel, write their story, and they realize that they're made for great purposes, that what they do matters. See, one of the... One of the great lies is the idea that what you do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I sometimes feel that. How, what difference did it make what I did today? What difference does it make? We were decorating our Christmas tree yesterday, and, there was a, and I said to Mona, how long do you think we'll keep doing this? As the kids get older, they kind of have this vision of a couple of years from now having like a little Snoopy tree with one ornament. Does it matter? Does it matter that we've pulled the Christmas dishes out? Does it matter what we've done? Does it matter that we... Does does anything matter? You see, self-destruction says, it doesn't matter what I do, so I'll just destroy it. We just survive. And God says, oh no. As as I write your story, as I write your story, it won't be about self-destruction, but it'll be about purposeful life that it matters that you love the person next to you or not because love changes things. Because the glory of God is a way of sticking to a person. Just like shame has a way of sticking with a person. Oh, but more powerful than shame is God's glory, his grace, and his love. Self-preservation starts to melt away to living instead of surviving. The illusion of control begins to melt away to the reality of trust. I can can trust. Sometimes, sometimes I would love, when we get back, when we get to heaven, when we get home, I want to find some of those shepherds Say, what was it? I'm sure when you saw the angels, they said, let's go do what we're supposed to do. Let's go. But there had to be a part of them was like, what are we doing doing this? How could this be? You know, most of us don't like hope. We don't want to get our hopes up. 
We just want to live without getting our hopes up. Christmas is all about hope. Shame is much safer than hope. Shame is much safer than life. Survival is much safer than real living. And so the the movement in our lives of that we move from the illusion of control to trust. Well, this morning, as we step in to the Christmas season, I know all of us want it to be an amazing season. And I would like to suggest to you that amazement begins not with pretending that all is okay, but is meeting with the shepherds on the hillside and and hear the calling of God who knows who you are. Some of you in this room have played a pretty good game most of your life and nobody really knows you, but he does. He knows you. He knows the mistakes you've made, the failures. He's known what you've done and what people have done to you. He knows the way you were raised. He knows everything about you. And he meets you on the hillside and says, come on, be my witness. Come and see what I'm doing in the manger. Come and see this wild, redemptive story that I'm writing with you. I'm not sure if this helped you any or not. But as I wrestled with what to talk about, I started getting excited about Christmas. Not because I was going to hype it up, but because I realized how much I needed the manger, how much I need Christ, how much you need Christ, how much we need him. And without him, we're lost shepherds just pretending on a hillside. But with him, we are changed people moving toward lives of purpose, moving toward lives of hope, moving toward lives of glory. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage. Give us the courage this Christmas season to see you in a new way. Give us the courage to to leave our, our hillside of shame and meet you in that manger. I pray that you would give us an echo of your glory, of your grace. Pray that you would meet us this season. And we thank you so much that you came. 
And we are not alone and no longer lost in our shame. We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.